Now, before we get into today's passage, I want to give you a little bit of information, a little bit of information that might provide a bit of context regarding the themes we're going to address this morning. You may have heard of some of these terms before. For some of you, these terms might be completely brand new. But prayerfully, they'll give a bit of clarity as we look at the theme this morning of getting ready for Christ's return in regards to looking up and getting ready. Now, the year 2000. The year 2000 was the year that Sydney hosted the Olympic Games. It was the year that everybody was really worried about the Y2K virus destroying our computers. The year 2000 was not only the time we entered into a new century, but into a new millennium. Now, that word millennium is actually meaning a thousand years. And from a theological perspective, that thousand years actually refers literally to the reign of Jesus Christ on earth. If you look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, you have that referenced. Now, for some, they see the millennium as a state of blessedness on the earth. For others, the millennium is viewed as this current church age. And for others still, the millennium is the, I guess you could say, the eternal state of believers to come. And there are three main views regarding the millennium. Therefore, when you, sorry, therefore, because of this view of the millennium, it also affects the way you view the return of Christ too. That's why it's important to follow what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, that's from the King James. Now, these three views are amillennialism, amillennialism, and that looks at the book of Revelation from a symbolic perspective, not as a record of actual events. Now, amillennials do believe in the second coming of Christ, but it rejects the idea of a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. They see Jesus' reign as beginning at his earthly ministry, or at his resurrection from the dead. And, and amillennials look at Acts chapter 2, verses 33 to 36 as, as one of the texts to justify their particular viewpoint or by which this is taught. Israel and the church are now the united people of God, and all the promises that Israel had are now seen as applying to the church or to the eternal existence in the new heavens and the new earth of this united people of God. So that's the first one, the amillennialism. The second one is called postmillennialism. This is where the second coming of Jesus Christ is expected at the end of that thousand years. And the church and her teaching is used by God to usher in a time, either literally or symbolically, of peace and righteousness on the earth, right before Jesus comes back, passes judgment and reigns eternally. So in basic terms, the church plays a very important role in preparing the world for his return. The third view is premillennialism, and that believes that the Lord will return before the thousand years, and he establishes that thousand years where he reigns on earth. According to this view, the church will be raptured will be snatched out before a great tribulation or a great judgment that God passes on the earth, after which Christ returns for this thousand-year reign 
which ends in the futile rebellion of the forces of evil. Uh, this, these forces of evil are then judged. There's a final judgment. And then Christ's eternal reign into eternity. This view sees Israel and the church as having two different prophetic programs as they are two different entities in the plans of God. Now, look, those are three overviews of what those three views are regarding the return of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you for yourselves to look into the scriptures and to study for yourself what the scriptures teach regarding Christ's return, because we have a tendency of reading things into it as opposed to having the scriptures speak to us themselves. Okay, We can look around us today, and, and, and as each day approaches, it's another day to the Lord's return. The question is this, regarding, regardless of what view you take, are you ready? Are you ready for the return of Christ? You see, today's message is a message of preparedness. It's a message that calls you and I to redeem the time because the days are evil. This is because regardless of what perspective you hold to, whether amillennial, postmillennial, or premillennial, they all share the same common factor. You know what that common factor is? The Lord Jesus returning. It is the return of Christ. When he returns in authority, he returns in judgment, and that is imminent, as in it is going to happen. So if you want to bow your heads, we'll open in a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the scriptures today as what the Lord has to reveal to us about his return. Let's pray. Father, as we sung this morning, we exalt thee, O God, for you are above all creation. You are him who reigns as king of kings and lord of lords and is sovereign. Regardless of all things that take place on earth, it is completely within your control and within your plan for us as your church. And so now as we look into your word, we pray that by your spirit you'll give us an insight into the truths that are revealed, but also that these truths will challenge us, will convict us, will change us from the inside out. May we truly be a bride that is purified, a bride that is pleasing in your sight, a bride that shines as a light for you as our bridegroom. So please speak to us now from your word. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. There's something really interesting as you read through the scriptures is that the return of Christ was expected. It was just expected. It wasn't something that they were sort of like hesitant about. They knew he was going to come back. Even when, they, when Jesus was ascended in chapter 1, you have the question asked, when, when will you be coming back? As talked about last week, the angel says, why do you look up in the air now? The, the same Jesus who you've seen go up into heaven will return in like manner. But all throughout, not only biblical history, but church history, the expectancy of the Lord's return is something that you look at biblical scholars, you, look at, you can look at religious con men. You look at well-meaning leaders, their desire to identify various signs that point to the Lord's return. There, there may have been people who looked at passages like Matthew 24 and likened the descriptions described in Matthew 24 and associated it with their current time, which is true. I mean, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 24. We're going to look at verses 5 to 7 very, very briefly. But Jesus is asked by his disciples, what will be the signs of your coming? And then in verse 4, he responds and says, basically, to beware. 
to be careful because there are many people that will rise. And you read in verse 5, For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. This has been happening for a long time, for centuries, where false messiahs all making the claim to be Jesus Christ. I actually, when I used to work at a hospital, I went to a psychiatric ward and I met a man there who actually claimed to be Jesus. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. I could tell he wasn't, but I met a guy who claimed to be Jesus. And you look throughout history, there are people who have made claims of being the Messiah. Whether the infamous people are like Jim Jones or Charles Manson, David Koresh in the 90s. These guys who have made claims to be Jesus Christ in the flesh. Then you have people who are not so well known in our circles. The likes of, I met this one, uh, a former Russian traffic officer named Sergei Torop. There's a gentleman in Japan, the head of a doomsday cult named Shoko Asahara, who was responsible for a gas attack in the Tokyo subway. Then you have, even in our backyard, you have a guy by the name of Stuart Walker, who claimed to be Jesus, who's from Sydney. Or across the ditch in New Zealand, there's this guy named Doug Metcalf, who's claimed to be Jesus, and basically set himself apart in this little commune, and claim to be the person of Christ. All this has taken place in my lifetime. In my lifetime. This is something that has happened in the past, and it's something that will probably continue as well. But that's one of the signs, the arising of false messiahs throughout history. In verse 6 we read this, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. The father of modern atheism, Friedrich Nietzsche, who died in 1900, he made this comment. He's the one who actually came up with the phrase or coined the phrase, God is dead. And he actually said this, with the death of God, there will be more blood shed in the 20th century than any other time. Someone actually made a study of this and came to the conclusion that there has been more loss of life, whether over wars, whether over religious ideology, wherever, wherever worldviews, there has been more death in the 20th century than the previous 19 combined. That's a lot of death to take place. Wars took place back then. Wars are still taking place now. Verse 7, we read this. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Once again, such things seem to be descriptive of what's going on today. Even politically speaking, there are conflicts going on everywhere, whether it be covertly in the halls of power, whether it be openly as military powers clash, whether it be the kingdoms of different ideologies that are fighting for dominance and seeking to claim a, a, an unbreakable influence on the, on the lives of others. And then we carry on in verse 7. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. I've always found it fascinating that in the 21st century, we still have problems with feeding people. In the 20th century, with the amount of excess that first world and second world countries produce, there's more than enough to actually deal with the likes of, say, of, of famine. To actually deal with that, and yet famine is still an issue. There is more than enough resources to actually deal with poverty, and yet poverty is still an issue. It's really quite fascinating you say that in the 21st century there are still all of these issues going on, whether it be feminine or whether it be earthquakes in various places. I remember in the Southern Highlands where an earthquake took place. That was really scary. 
I thought it was a whole bunch of horses that got out of the, of, of the, the, the horse fields and ran by our house. But that was really scary. But I've noticed in my 49 years of life, the increase of natural disasters where you could have a bushfire, even with here in Australia, insane bushfires that go absolutely... And then in the same area, a few months later, insane floods. And you look, in, in my time of life, I've seen slightly different happenings within the way the weather works. I don't know much about the whole climate change thing, but I do know things are different. Things are changing. And when you look in verse 8, which I find really interesting, we read this. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Now, I've not given birth, okay, but I have been present at my children's births. And what I've noticed, what I've noticed is that when, uh, please correct me, ladies, for those of you who've had, had children, what I've noticed is that when you have like birth pains, contractions, they start off and they might be 12 minutes apart. Then the closer it is to the baby being born, the, the birth pains become more frequent and more intense. Can you at least give me a nod, ladies, if that's true? Yes, yes. Joe, Joe, Joe and Lee's like, I don't know. Okay, all right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, from what I understand, besides the, the uniqueness that our sister Jo Lee has, all right, so, okay, but it becomes more frequent and more intense, and it goes from maybe eight minutes to five minutes, more frequent and more intense, and then it goes from five minutes to two minutes, more frequent and more intense, until it goes from two minutes to like 30 seconds, and then out comes a baby, all right, and that's incorrect, okay, okay, that's from a male perspective, all right, that's, 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 okay, all right, so that, that's why, but it becomes more frequent and more intense. Yes? Now, so too with these specifics referred to here by the Lord Jesus. False messiahs have increased over the past centuries. The amount of people that have come up and claimed to be Jesus. In the 18th century, you had two people, two recorded people who claimed to be the person of Jesus Christ and made these claims and had a following. In the 19th century, that increased into seven. He had seven people making that claim. In the 20th century, you had 29. 29 people all claiming to be Jesus. In the 21st century, in the past 20 years, you've got an extra seven on top of that. Seven new ones. So that's excluding the ones that have moved over from the 20th century. But what happens? You have this increase. It becomes more frequent and more intense. You look at wars taking place, wars and rumors of wars. You look around now, it may be just because of what's taking place here. We have online stuff. We have access to more information, but that doesn't change the fact, even with the access of more information, the fact that there has been an increase in battles, an increase of fighting for power, an increase where it's becoming more frequent and more intense. When you look at, look at how it says how kingdoms are divided, you look at what's going on in the US, you look at what's going on in London, you look at what's going on even here, you've got these fighting for power, you've got these, these people that are fighting for influence, where it's becoming more frequent and it's becoming more intense. So much more intense where they're trying to outlaw this, being able to preach the gospel, where they're trying to outlaw standing for the things of Christ, where they're trying to outlaw, it's becoming more frequent and it's becoming more intense. Natural disasters are becoming more frequent and becoming more intense. Now, what's fascinating is what it says here is that this is the beginning. This is the beginning of things. Now, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying all these things here to scare you. 
I'm not saying all these things to make you paranoid and to take every little event you see and fit it into this framework of Christ's return. I'm not saying to do that for you, okay? I'm not trying to freak you out. What I am saying is that if you are a Christian and you're looking at these things and you know the signs that are referred to here by the Lord Jesus, does that not stir within you a little bit of excitement? Does that make you feel a little bit giddy? Because it's like, wow, Jesus is coming back. And so regardless, regardless of whether you're amillennial, premillennial, or, or postmillennial, the fact remains the same, that these signs are pointing to the return of our Lord. And that is what makes me excited. Now, personally, I lean towards the view of being premillennial. That in the plan of God, before judgment takes place, the Lord will deliver his people. You look at the likes of the example given of Noah. Noah, where before judgment is passed on the earth, God provides the means where safety is reached and he is delivered as belonging to him. I look at the likes of Lot. Lot, in the, before judgment was passed in the city of Sodom, God in his goodness, God in his grace, plucks out or snatches out Lot from that judgment. I mean, I mean, look what happens with Israel in Egypt before judgment comes with the final plague. God provides a means where his people are delivered to escape such judgment. So too for the church today. That for us as the church to be plucked out before God passes his final judgment, because for God's final judgment to take place, he must remove his spirit, remove the restraining bulwark, the restraining thing that keeps evil at bay. If you look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8. I'm sorry, verses 4 to 8. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. There we go. We read this. Starting at verse 4. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship. This is talking about the man of lawlessness. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I would, I sorry, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Now, that which is removed will allow Satan to roam free and to set himself up as God, in turn fulfilling God's sovereign plan. Now, question, where does, God's, where does God's spirit reside? In his temple. Where is God's temple? It is in you and I, in the church. Thus, the beauty of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. It will be up on the screen. We read this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, we have the blessing of the Lord's deliverance from his coming judgment. This is because our judgment for sin was done at the cross. 
that by believing that God became a man as Jesus Christ, to live the life that satisfied the holy standard of God's law, believing that he, as a man, was crucified and sacrificed his life on a cross that appeased God's righteous judgment for my sin, who, when he was buried, took that punishment of sin to the grave so that it could never be brought up again and used against me to condemn me. And when he resurrected from the dead, guaranteed my forgiveness of sin, my acceptance by God, and secured my eternal destination. That when he comes in the air, he will command his archangel to sound the call. I've used this illustration before, but we used to have a white van. Because this is when we had a few extra kids uh, that were fostering. So we had, at that time, nine children. And I remember taking them to a park. And they're playing with all the other kids, and I would do this when it was time to go. I would just yell out, my children, my children, and all my kids would come running. And they would run into the car. I remember, I still remember the one time I called my children, all the kids ran, and I got two extra kids. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't belong to me, man. And then you had parents running. And I'm like, I didn't do that on purpose. And they just saw kids running, and they wanted to be a part of it. to say, oh, they must be going somewhere. Okay. <laughs> But you see, that's essentially what happens. The, the, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God is sound. It is the call that wakes the dead. It is the call that rallies his people around him. It is the call that takes us from the here and now into his direct presence. It is what the disciples were looking for and expected, that he would return soon so that they, would, so they were faithfully about their father's business. It is what the early church looked to, that at any moment Jesus could return, and so they sought to be prepared. It is what the Thessalonians were enthusiastic over. That's why every chapter refers to the second coming of Christ in that letter to the first Thessalonians. It is what they were enthusiastic over as the hope of his, of his coming for their deliverance took precedence over their immediate situation. There's a wonderful quote by Alexander McLaren that says this, the apostolic church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death and heaven. The early Christians were looking not for the cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. That's what they were looking for. This is what we have made available for us, for the Thessalonians and for us. We are to be enthused and excited over this beautiful reality. That, that the Lord, he will come to us. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Enthused that he will call us with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. Enthused that the dead will rise and be with him first. And the dead on Christ will rise. And enthused that we that are living will join them. That we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. You see, premillennial theologians call this the rapture. That rapture, that word rapture is not actually found in the Bible. It's taken from the Latin version of the Bible, the Latin translation of the Bible. And it's the word rapere, which is R-A-P-E-R-E. -E. I don't speak Latin. Okay, rapere. And it literally means, it literally means to be caught up, to be taken out, to be snatched. That's what it means. So when it says there, when we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, that's the word rapere. That's what we have for us. 
to be caught up, which explains, which explains why the final statement that Paul makes as in this part of the text, he says in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. The NIV states, to encourage one another with these words. This is the greatest of comforts. You know why? Because it is not focusing on the here and now. It is looking at what is to come. It is what you're looking forward to. That's why he could say you can encourage someone else. And like, do this. Look to somebody close. I know there's a gap, but look to somebody close and say to them, the Lord is coming for you. <laughs> Don't say it like a threatening way. The Lord is coming for you. Don't, no, it's not a threatening way. But the Lord, I mean, isn't that exciting? The Lord is coming for you. Look to someone. Look to someone and saying, the Lord is calling you. In a good way, Alison, in a good way. The Lord is calling you. Look to someone else and say, those who've gone before, so there'll be those who go before, go. And we're going to be with them. That's what we have. That's what we have. The Lord is calling you. The Lord, sorry, the Lord has come to you. The Lord is calling you. The, those, others will go before us. Our brothers and sisters who have gone before, they're going to be there and we're going to meet them. That's what's exciting. That's what gives the giddiness in my heart. That, when I was studying this, I started smiling for no reason. My wife looks at me because my computer's there. She looks at me and goes, what are you watching? I was like, I'm, I'm doing my sermon. And, and, yeah, and, and she's probably like, yeah, whatever. But it was true. I had this dumb smile on my face because I was thinking, the Lord's coming for me. He's going to call me. I'm going to see my mum and dad who have gone before me. I'm going, to see all, I'm going to see Pastor Evelyn. I'm going to see all the brothers and sisters who have gone before because they're going to go first. I mean, that's a bit envious, actually. I mean, really, they're going to be there first. But we're going to be with them. That's what this is exciting. This is why it's encouraging. This is why we can comfort one another. This is why we can encourage one another. You're feeling down? You can say to somebody, you know the Lord's coming for you, eh? You know the Lord's calling you, eh? You know you're going to meet up with everybody else, eh? You know that this is just temporary. This is just the here and now. You know what you've got coming for you. That excites. That warms my heart. And that's the reason why the passages are here. And I even wrote there, doesn't that make you giddy? Doesn't that excite you? Doesn't that enthuse your soul? But even in that excitement, even in that enthusiasm, in that eagerness for that day, we need to be reminded of three specifics. Three specifics carrying on in, in 1 Thessalonians 5. Here's the first one. Don't be surprised because it can happen at any time. Don't be surprised. It can happen at any time. We read in verses five, chapter 5, verses 1 2. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. You know what that means? It means it's when you least expect it. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples that no one knows the day or hour of his coming. In Matthew 24, 36, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So a skillful thief can get into the place he wants to get to, can take the things he wants to take and leave without being noticed. Okay, you don't realize that until afterwards. I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite a skill to have unless you're on the receiving end of those skills. Okay, but it, with this, we're told that the, the return of the Lord is like that. It's like a thief in the night. 
It's not when you're expecting it. What can you do? Because you don't know. You don't know. You always think. You always think, oh, well, it'll never happen to me. I'll never be caught out when you think about being robbed. You never think that until it happens to you, until it takes place. And so what do you need to do? You need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. Don't be surprised. For example, I, my, my children's bicycles were at the front of the house and my brother, Pastor Fritz, came up from Melbourne last, last year sometime and he goes to me, whose bikes are those? I says, oh, they're Nathaniel's and Jirel's. And you leave them there? Yeah, why? Won't they get stolen? No, no. It's, it's a nice neighbourhood. Now, do we still have the bikes? Yeah, but I just realised they could steal it. <laughs> People could steal it. And, like, oh. and all I would probably do as a parent was like, Serve you right. Shouldn't have left your bikes there. But that's what it is. That we, we become so complacent with how things are around us, we forget to be prepared. We, we're not on edge. We don't take the necessary steps to be prepared for that. And we do this even regards the Lord's return. You see, Paul understands, because he alludes to it in verse 1, that there is still a charge for them to be prepared. Now, there is this condemnation that, that Peter raises when he describes the mindset of believers, these mockers and scoffers that don't know Christ. And what's interesting is that their words can even influence us, even the strongest of Christians regarding the Christ's return. That can change our perspective from, from heavenward to earthward because we allow such influences to influence us. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, we read this. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. These mockers and scoffers who sit there, and, and that is true. It's been a long time since the Lord has been here. And we can sit there and listen to the voices of this world that say, well, you've always spoken about that. You've always got this pie in the sky when I die by and by mindset. How do you know? How do you know? The fact of the matter is if you have your eyes open and look it around, you see how these are the beginnings of birth pains toward the Lord's return. It is not necessarily for us as Christians the denial of, of the Lord's truth, but it can be equally as damaging to suppress it too. To hold it down as being irrelevant, as being inconsequential or even useless. And to think that this ideology, this idea that, oh, well, whatever, I'm going to put that off, can actually affect us in our preparation for Christ's return. The ideology that is, that is gaining more and more followers, even within the church, that seek to discredit the Holy Scriptures, that seek to diminish the value of Christ's sacrifice and write off the historical relevance of Christ's resurrection from the dead. This, this creates a world that is seeking peace without God, benevolent love without Christ, and an abundant life without the Holy Spirit. Which means then for you and I, the next thing we need to remember, don't be complacent just because things ease up. We love complacency. We love just sort of sitting down and relaxing. That's, that's, a, whole, that's a whole Australian cultural thing of being, yeah, she'll be right, mate. 
Yeah, sweet as. That, that's a New Zealand thing. Anyway. Okay, but we read verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. This isn't to label any one individual. This isn't to criticize or to belittle struggles or trials that we may be going through. But sometimes we focus on this idea that just because we're Christians, we are never going to experience hardship. We are never going to experience trial or difficulty or pain when we are never promised that within the scriptures. We are never promised that within the scriptures. We, 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 are, we don't have that freedom from such things until we are in his presence. We sing, we sing, no weeping, no hurt or pain, no suffering, you hold me now. No darkness, no sick or lame, no hiding, you hold me now. A truth that is drawn from Revelation 21 verse 4 that says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. But when you look at that song that we sing, we, what, what's the first word? On that day when I see, or that you have for me. When I see you face to face, they're surrounded by your grace. All my fears stripped away by the warmth of your embrace. That is then, not now. That we're not guaranteed these things. That takes place in the establishing of these new heavens and new earth. What we are promised in the here and now is God's presence to comfort, God's word to guide, and God's spirit to empower. Thus, when it's referred to here, when peace and safety supposedly is rich, then is when sudden destruction follows. And we've got to understand that even that sudden destruction may actually be a part of God's will and a part of God's plan in our lives as individuals and maybe even our lives as a church. If you read in Revelation chapter 6, you have this plan laid out for us or part of this plan. For example, you get given this record of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're told of a, a rider of a white horse who holds a bow, who is given authority to ride out and conquer and is bent on conquering in Revelation chapter 6 verse 2. This is a picture of the Antichrist referred to in Daniel 9, 26 and 27, who's supposed to bring peace, but is soon followed by destruction. And that destruction comes in the form of war. We have the, the ride of the red horse in chapter 6, verse 3, then famine in chapter 6, verse 5, and then death in chapter 6, verse 8. And as despairing as this sounds, this is all a part of God's overarching plan overarching plan to bring about his ultimate redemption of the world and of us. So, in each of our lives, when trials take place, it may not be because of sin and dumb choices that we made. It may not be because of discipline, where we need to grow in certain areas. Although it may be, it may actually be because God is working according to a plan in each of our lives and in his ultimate purpose for his ultimate purposes to come about. Which means this, that I need to stop seeing things from my limited temporal view. That's what I need to stop doing. I need to stop interpreting things from what I see and instead interpret what's going on in the world, interpret what's going on in my life, interpret what's going on in my family from God's word, by God's spirit. And that in the timetable of God, this can be considered that, that calm before the storm as he continues to bring about his purposes. So, 
So far, we've got don't be distracted. Or sorry, don't be complaint. Don't be surprised. Don't be complacent. And lastly, don't be distracted from what you're supposed to be doing. From doing what you're supposed to. It says, but you brethren are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Don't be distracted because of who you are. Because of who you are. You are sons of light. You are sons of the day. You are children of the Most High. Don't be distracted from the task that being that person entails. Of being in Christ. Don't be distracted. See, with everything Paul has stated regarding to their knowledge, regarding to their identity, regarding to their privilege, regarding to their position, he reiterates a wonderful reality that's appropriate for you and I to be reminded of as well. And that is, don't be distracted. Don't be distracted with what is going to happen. Because the Lord will bring about the completion of his plans. If you look at Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, we read this. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Don't be distracted with what's going to happen because we do this. We're so eager about something else, we forget about the things we need to do in the here and now. Like, say, living a life that is sanctified for the glory of God. Don't be distracted with chasing after secondary issues. Our primary call is to know, is to love, and to proclaim the Lord Jesus. Philippians 3.10, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. Mark 12, 29 and 30, the greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Don't be distracted with chasing after secondary issues, which is what we can do. I remember doing this as well, focusing on things that weren't really pleasing to God, even though I thought they were good. Don't be distracted by the various temptations the enemy throws our way. Why? Because Christ has given us the victory and made us more than conquerors. Romans 8, 37. Don't be distracted by our own lack or by our own inadequacies, for we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Philippians 4, 13. Don't be distracted with what you don't have. Rather, look at who Christ has made you as sons of light, as sons of the day, as children of the Most High. How we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms whose names are written in the book of life. And you can go on throughout the scriptures there and so on and so on and so on that, that, that all this takes place. The fact of, of not being complacent, of not being surprised because God's doing what he's doing and of not being distracted, all that culminates in us starting to be looking up, to be looking up, to be getting ready for his return, to have my, my ears open, to have my heart sensitive, to have my eyes fixed, to have my resolve steadfast because we have been given eyes that see by his spirit. We have been given ears that hear by His Spirit. We have been given a heart 
that can respond to the depths of God's plans for us, for his church, and in preparation for his return. That's the reason why it's, when it says, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him, but we have been given those things by his Spirit. So that we can identify those things. So as we look up and get ready for the Lord's return, awaiting the Lord's shout and the trump of the archangel, remember we're waiting for a time is coming when all we and all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. John 5, 28 and 29. For our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's what we look forward to. May we be looking not for the cleft in the ground called the grave, may we look for the king in the sky who is called Christ. just want to bow your heads and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this exciting word this morning. We thank you so much that you are a God who is coming back for us. We thank you so much that you have given us the means and the capacity to be able to live a life in preparedness of your return. I pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to respond to what you're doing in each of our lives individually, but also corporately as a church. That we as your people will shine as a light to proclaim the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we will be expectant, that we will not be distracted, but expectant and excited of that return. Heavenly Father, please give us a desire for, for heaven. Please give us a desire for more of you. Please give us a desire for more of your word. Father, please just help us. We need you to move within each of our hearts as we look expectantly at what's going on around us and seeing your hand in everything that's going on. So we commit ourselves to you now, Lord, and ask that you be glorified in each of our lives individually and as a church. May we not grow weary in well-doing. May we be stirred from the depths of our soul and transformed from the inside out. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the power that works in us. Unto you be glory in the church both now and forever, even to the end of the age. In Jesus' mighty name we give thanks. And all God's people said... Amen. Thank you very much for that, brothers and sisters. Thank you much, very much, everybody at home. See you guys next week. Keep looking up.